Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. In our study last week, Paul was in this city called Caesarea. I showed you a map of where that was. It's kind of a, um, uh, a beach town. It's uh, a little bit of a retreat kind of a city. It's built right on the ocean. It's gorgeous. And a lot of Roman dignitaries treated that area kind of like a resort town. So Paul is there as a prisoner in Caesarea because there are a group of Jewish men in in Jerusalem that want him dead and they've made a pact, there's about 40 of them, that they're not gonna eat or sleep or do anything, drink anything until this guy's dead. Well, it's been two years, um, so I don't know if these guys like broke their fast or (laughs) what, but Paul is in Caesarea and he's a prisoner under this governor named Felix. So at the end of two years, and this is kind of where we took place last week, a new governor takes place, or steps in and takes a role, and his name is Festus. And Festus is at a Jewish festival in Jerusalem, and these Jews approach him and say, hey, there's a guy that you've had in your custody under the previous governor for two years, and we would really love to bring him back to Jerusalem to try him fairly. Well, we know that that's not the goal. They want to kill him, and they want to put him in a position during transport in order that an unfortunate incident could occur, and they could take Paul out. So Festus knows kind of the backstory of what's going on. So what he says is, why don't you guys come to Caesarea and plead your case? Now, this was the second, uh, actually the third trial, but uh, the second trial, but um, uh, they agree to it and they come back to Caesarea and, and, and last week there's this trial and Paul was trying to make his case and the Jewish leaders are making their case and Festus says, would you like to go back to Jerusalem for your trial? And he says, nope, I appeal to Caesar. I wanna go to Rome. And at that point as a Roman citizen, when you appeal to Caesar, that stops the entire process. There are no more trials. You can't have a, well, I kind of, let me, let me get a take back. I kind of, I, I, I don't want to go to Caesar now. Once you like push that button, like there is no stopping that train. He is headed to Rome and he will see the Caesar. Now, the problem with that is it requires the governor at the time, Festus, to write a report as to why this guy is coming to see the Caesar. And as we're gonna find out this week, Festus doesn't really have a good grasp on what's going on. But a group of dignitaries are coming in town that can help a little bit. So that's where we're picking up the story today, Acts 25, verse 13. We're in Caesarea and a famous family comes to visit. Let's pick it up in chapter 25, verse 13. It says, when the days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. Okay, so now we've got some more characters in the story. We've got Agrippa, who is apparently some king, and we've got Bernice. Verse 14, as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king saying, look man, there is a guy who has been left in prison under the previous governor, Felix. 
And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against this guy, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. And I answered them, that is not the custom of the Romans to just give up somebody before the accused met their accusers face to face and had an opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against them. It seems reasonable. So then they came up here together and I made no delay to put on the next day, took my seat on the tribunal. We had this case and I ordered the man to be brought. And when the accuser stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I suppose. Rather, they, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain guy named Jesus who was dead and apparently who Paul, Paul now asserts to be alive. So being at a loss on how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go back to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to, ke- to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. So then Agrippa said to Festus, well, I would like to meet this man myself. So tomorrow, he said, you will hear him. So the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. You kind of setting the scene here in your mind. There's, there's going to be this uh, hearing. It's not a trial. He doesn't hear any more trials. It's just going to be a hearing so that this guy Agrippa and Bernice can hear what Paul has to say. So Festus said, King Agrippa. So he's, he's establishing why we're all here. King Agrippa and all who are present with us. You see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death, and as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. I don't know what to say to you. Like, I don't even, I can't even figure out, I don't know what to do with this case. So that's why you're here. King Agrippa, so that we, after you've examined him, I have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. That also seems reasonable to me. So let's pause there because there's a lot of information going on and there's some data that you're gonna need in order to start making sense of what's happening. So let's start with the characters. You've got the first character named Festus, and we discussed him in the introduction. He is the new governor of Caesarea, and he inherited a complete mess. He came into office, and there's this prisoner who's been here for two years, and Felix is like, yeah, he's not that bad of a guy. We actually spend afternoons talking about this guy named Jesus over tea. He's got a lot of interesting things to say. They scare me half to death, but they are very interesting things. And so I don't really know what to do with them, and so he's still sitting in prison. Enjoy your tenure. Felix leaves, and Festus is like, you gotta be kidding me. So we have this whole thing, and now no one knows what to do with Festus, and then this guy named Agrippa comes into the scene, and there's this girl named Bernice, and they seem to be in a position to give Festus some information about what's going on with Paul that might be helpful to the case. So why is Agrippa and Bernice in a position to offer information on Paul? Well, the reason why is because Agrippa is actually Agrippa II. Agrippa II and Bernice are siblings, and their father was Agrippa I, Herod Agrippa. Now, this is like the third Herod you've probably read in the Bible. 
And as you're reading through Matthew and Luke and Acts, you're like, God, how many Herods are there? Every time I turn around, there's another Herod. And it seems like this guy is like living forever. So there are different Herods. So what I wanna do is I wanna walk you through the Herod dynasty family tree. So if you'll turn with me, I've put together a nice little flow chart to help you understand who's related to who and how many Herods there are. There are a lot. So we're gonna start up here at the top with King Herod, also known as Herod the Great. This is the guy you read about in Matthew 2, 1 through 19, and Luke 1 through 5. He's the guy who has built the expansion to the temple. He's the guy who built the city of Caesarea that this entire thing is taking place in right now. Uh, he also built this uh, uh, little retreat in the desert called Masada. Um, he's responsible for a lot of the expansion builds in Israel, and he's also the guy who's responsible for putting out the hit order on baby Jesus when he was born. That's this guy. Now, Herod the Great had four kids. Now, what I did here was there are some siblings that are not on this chart, and I didn't put moms on here and stuff. I, I only put the people on here who are the most important to the stories we're covering. For example, there is another sibling over here, um, but she doesn't really play a role. She's a sister. I think her name's like... Marambe or Harambe or something, I, I don't know. So I left her off. So there are some people, this is not an extensive list, there are some people missing. But Herod the Great had four main sons. You've got Archelaus, Archelaus Antipas, Philip, and Aristobulus. Now he has a line through him because his dad, King Herod, suspected that Aristobulus was planning a plot to overthrow his dad, so his dad killed him. You know, I mean, as you do. <laughs> but before, before dad killed his son, Aristobulus had a son of his own, Agrippa I. Well, when Agrippa I, Herod Agrippa, who is the guy in Acts 12 that puts Peter in prison, and then Peter is set free from an angel, and then also kills uh, James, the apostle, when he was a young man, he, he was like a little boy, when his dad got killed, well, you don't want him hanging around too because grandpa might want to take you out too. So his mom takes him to Rome and he becomes best friends with the guy who will eventually become the Caesar, Claudius. So can you see how this guy eventually got his position? He became best friends with the, um, the guy who becomes a Caesar. So when the guy becomes a Caesar, he's like, you know what? You've got a long history of being a Jewish king because your grandpa was a Jewish king. So how about now that I'm in charge, I give you some kind of prominent role. How about as Rome, we establish you as the king of Israel, you know, kind of like David and Solomon and all those guys, the kings, we'll make you king. That's how this guy got his job. Agrippa I is the grandson of King Herod, and he is a nightmare of a king. He starts the assault on the Christian church, and this is the guy who we read about in Acts 12 that's standing in the amphitheater of Caesarea, and his big, shiny, silver coat is blinding all the crowd, and he's really just 
just feeling himself because he's just all about just, he's just so popular and he likes being popular. And then all of a sudden he gets this sharp pain in his stomach and he doubles over and we're told that God killed him. That's this guy. Well, this guy also had some children. He had a son named Agrippa II, who is Herod Agrippa, who is this guy we're learning about right here. The only problem is that when this guy died, this guy was only 17, not old enough to take the mantle of king. So the, the um, uh, emperor at the time decided that when this king died, since this guy wasn't old enough to take it, what we'll do is we'll establish a system of Roman governors until this guy is old enough to take the throne. So technically he will be king even though he's not king right now. He's doing king things like traveling around to all the governors and eventually the governors will step down and this guy will become king. Why am I telling you all about this? Because Agrippa II had a sister named Bernice and also another sister named Drusilla. Drusilla was married to Felix, the previous governor of Caesarea. Also, wait for it, Bernice and Agrippa were romantically involved with each other. Ew. Yeah. Why is that important? Because what we're reading right now is that Paul is about to share his testimony to two very different people. And this is where we're going today. We're talking about the importance of sharing your testimony, we're talking about the importance of evangelism and how that happens, how you can evangelize and share the gospel message with different people. And we get an example of Paul doing it, sharing his uh, testimony to two very different people. You've got one guy who has zero knowledge of God, Jesus, the law, the prophets, the way, doesn't know anything. And he's listening to, G to Paul preach. And you've got another guy who will one day is be Israel's next king with a deep knowledge of all these things, but also is deeply invested in perverse sexual sin. So out of these two characters, you get all kinds of different people. You get folks who know things about the Lord. You get things who don't know things about the Lord. You get people who are actively involved in perverse sin. You got some people who are just trying to do the right thing. And all of these characters are set before Paul. And what the Bible is trying to explain to us and zero in is that it is incredibly important for every single person on planet Earth to hear the gospel that just because you are in prison or you are a governor, neither one of those exempt you from having to hear the good news of Jesus. You can have $10 in your account or you can just make $10 million on your latest movie, but both of you need to hear the same message. Your age doesn't matter, your politics don't matter, um, how good you are doesn't matter, how bad you are doesn't matter. There is no position in this life that exempts you from hearing the message that Paul is about to preach. Everybody needs to hear the gospel. Everybody. So what is the gospel? Let's hear it. Acts 26 starts in verse one. So Agrippa said to Paul, all right, you have permission to speak for yourself. So then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, 
that I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and the controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time if they are willing to testify that according to the strictest party of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers. That's interesting. He's tying this into something that Agrippa would understand to which our 12 tribes hope to attain. You see what he's doing there? He's building some rapport. I know where you stand on these issues. I also stand on the same issues. I'm Jewish, I know you're Jewish. We have a long history together. These 12 tribes earnestly worship night and day, and as for this hope, I'm accused by Jews, O king. Why? Is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? And then in verse nine, he starts laying out what happened. See, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues, and I tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. And in this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. Pause right there. Because what I want to do today is I want to look at how Paul witnesses to Agrippa and to Festus. Because his method here is very helpful for us. I see this as a logical step-by-step process in his mind because he's a very methodical guy. And if you don't believe me, just go read the book of Romans. He builds a case. He adds evidence. There's a very logical process to the way he works. And we can see that in the way that he's evangelizing. So what Paul is doing here is he's given freedom to preach to Agrippa and he starts preaching the gospel message. And what does he leverage? He leverages his own personal testimony. He essentially says, I'm going to show you what God is doing right now by telling you what he has done inside of my life. See, King, the Lord is at work and he has been at work for many years in our people, but let me walk you through how that work was unbelievably specific in my life, okay? So if we're, if we're dissecting how he's going to share the gospel, you're gonna see this in three steps. And the reason why I'm kind of shifting this message and going this way, because I've had numerous questions over the last few weeks, and all of them kind of center around the idea. Like, I feel a stir to start, to start sharing my faith with people, but I don't know where to start. I don't know how to do it. What do I say? How do I talk about it? Paul gives us a method that we can use in order to start that conversation, okay? Here's the process. He starts by establishing common ground. The common ground is, I understand your position, and we actually have some things in common. 
And the thing in common is that all of us have been born into sin. The commonality here is not necessarily on like how we feel about a specific political issue or, or where we work. The common issue is that we are all coming to the same place as mankind, and that is that we need rescuing. That in all of the thousands of years that mankind has tried to resolve the issues that are presented before them, every time we try to create some solution, all we do is make things worse. Every time we try to save ourselves or make our lives better, we end up affecting four things that we didn't think about and we end up making our life worse than it was before we started. So if we're going to get any semblance of help, we need outside influence. And that's the common ground. We all start from the same place, which is we need rescuing. So he starts with common ground, then he moves to sharing his personal experience. And this is what we're gonna cover next in the, the next verse. He starts off by sharing, look, I understand where you're sitting there, Agrippa, like I get it. You're a Jew, you, you've heard of Jesus, you don't agree with where he stands, you don't think he's the Messiah, he's the one, I get it. I used to be in that seat. I know how you feel, because that's how I used to be. And all of us have lived some portion of our life before we met Jesus. Even if it was really young, you lived a section of your life knowing what it was like to be a non-believer. There's common ground there. So the next step he takes is, now that I have established that I understand where you're coming from, let me share with you the thing that Jesus did to change my life. Let me share with you why I think differently now. And then the third step he comes in is he starts taking how his personal experience is connected to the larger story of God. And that larger story always includes the seeking and saving of more people. So follow me. I see where you are. Let me tell you how I moved out of that position and let me share with you how God has all throughout history been doing this thing of moving people out of this place of non-belief into a place of belief and how he's actually doing that right now and it's why we're having this conversation. You ready? This is good. So then he goes into verse 13. He starts sharing his personal testimony. He moves into this personal experience and he, he talks about what the Lord did in his life. Verse 13, it says, at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when he had all, we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in Hebrew, Saul, Saul, why, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from the people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you. To do what? To open their eyes. So that they may turn from darkness to light. 
and from the power of Satan to God. That they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Now that, man, that is a chunk of meat right there. What are you calling me to do? What has the Lord, how did you move from the place that you were going to a town to murder Christians to, a, to now you're going to the town to tell people about Jesus? You got a mandate from Jesus. He came and called your name. He saved your soul. And then he gave you a job. And that job is to join his work of opening eyes, bringing people from darkness to light, overcoming the power of Satan. That's big then they may receive forgiveness of sins and be placed among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all Judea and all the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with repentance. And for this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. For this day I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. That the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. He's starting to dip his toe into step two there, but let's pause and reflect on what he's doing. He's sharing his personal testimony. He's saying, these things that I'm doing, I started off and they seemed right to me. I was living my life doing the thing that I thought God wanted me to do, and then he called my name, changed my life, and gave me a job. And that job is now tell other people about him. Now you may be reading this thing thinking like, okay, uh, well, this is Paul, right? This is, this is kind of like a big deal. So like, I don't know if I can like look at what's happening to Paul and, and, and consider that I have some testimony that's worth sharing when we're like reading the life of Paul. Well, look, maybe he didn't knock you to the ground, but didn't he change your life? Didn't he take you out of darkness into light? Didn't he open your eyes? Yes, he did, and that is a testimony. And so what Paul's doing here is he's saying, I've established common ground, I know where you came from, but let me talk about what Jesus did in my life. He changed me. And we read this and we're like, well that was a pretty big change, of course he's gonna be able to leverage that when he's preaching. But I'm telling you that if you spend some time thinking about what your life was like before you met Jesus, and you look at your life now, you will be able to track some monumental transformations that are what we call a testimony. And if you can't, there's only two reasons for that. One, you were born again at a very young age, and you've stayed faithful, and that in and of itself is a testimony that God has kept you from this world. Or two, maybe you're not a believer. Well, hold on a second. 
don't know if you have the authority to be talking like that. Well, here's the truth. Every single person that we read in scripture that is confronted with a holy God walks away changed. There is nobody in this book that has an encounter with God Almighty and walks away and says, huh, that was kind of interesting. I think I'll go back to what I used to do. Everybody gets their life transformed. That's the promise when you come to Jesus and respond to him calling your name. And so I don't care how radical your testimony is. You know, man, I was... I was about to overdose, woke up in my own throw up, and Jesus saved me. That's pretty radical, right? And I was just kind of at a summer camp, and like uh, God called my name and saved me from a lukewarm life. That's my testimony. I've never done anything really that radical. Never been in trouble with the law, never been drunk, never smoked a cigarette. I haven't lived. (laughs) But the point is, is that when I was 17 years old, I, I was living the most lukewarm, boring, passion for nothing life. And God looked down and he said, I'm gonna give you something to live for. And he called my name and he changed my life. And that's what you lead with when you're witnessing. Why? Because your life is now on display as evidence that what he says he can do, he actually does. So Paul is standing there before Agrippa and saying, we've got some common ground. We have a history that's very similar, but let me tell you where our history diverges. Let me tell you about the day that Jesus saved my life and gave me a job, and everything after that was completely transformed. I was never the same after that moment. But he doesn't stop there because he starts dipping his toes into the waters of offering Agrippa this opportunity of transformation by starting to connect the dots for him. He mentions it with the prophets, He says, I'm not, like God didn't wake up and just say, well, okay, let's start something crazy new with Paul. No, I'm one guy in a long line of him changing people's lives. So he gets down to verse 24. He says, and as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus, who's sitting there, has no clue what's going on, said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. You're crazy, man. You spent too much time in college. I mean, maybe. I've met some guys who spent so much time in college. They knew way too much. And he starts accusing him. He's like, your education is far out. It's, it's, it's outpacing like your mental capacity to actually have a conversation. You're talking about things that you don't know what you're talking about. But then Paul says, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. I'm speaking true and rational words, for the king knows about these things. And he looks at Agrippa. The king knows, and to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things have escaped his notice. For none of these things have been done in a corner. That's a bold statement. 
King, you know what's going on. You know your dad arrested Peter. You know your dad had James killed. You know your grandpa tried to kill Jesus. You, this, none of this was done in a corner. You know exactly what I'm talking about. And you know how, how the prophets have been talking about the Messiah for thousands of years. You know this. King Agrippa, verse 27. He says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe the prophets, King Agrippa. King Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, are you going to try to persuade me to be a Christian? That's the motivation. Agrippa knows exactly how this conversation has turned. Agrippa thought he was doing his friend a favor by listening to this guy to give him some information on how to write up a report, and now this has turned into an evangelism moment, and these two guys are going to have to make a decision about what they think about Jesus. See, that's the danger of going to church. Because somebody that's a friend is like, hey, you want to come to church? Sure, I mean, I'll go to church, whatever. Whatever, eh, whatever, I'll go to church. But you sit in the service and you listen to the word of God teach, taught, and, and now you're accountable to what you heard. You can't ever leave ever again and say, I didn't know. I didn't know. I didn't understand. No, because these things weren't done in a corner. This stuff has been broadcast for thousands of years. Entire lives of people have been rearranged based off of this information, and, and Paul's like, no, no, you, this isn't done in a court. You, Agrippa, you know, you believe the prophets, right? And Agrippa's like, what are you trying to do, man? Get me to be a Christian? You trying to convert me? And Paul responds and says, man, whether, whether a short period of time or a long period of time, I would to God that not only you, but all who hear me this day, every one of you, little uh, centurion over there, I'm, I'm looking at you, every single one of you would be like me this day, except for maybe the chains. But I'm... Then the king arose and the governor of Bernice and all those were sitting with him. And when they had withdrawn together, they said to one another, man, this man is doing nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, mm, isn't it a shame? This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. So what is Paul doing in this last step of this evangelism here? He's connecting the larger story of God and using it to offer Agrippa an open door to walk through. He's saying, King Agrippa, our prophets have been talking about this and we've been getting pieces of the puzzle for years. And this is what's important about this step of the process. So we establish common ground, we share our testimony, and then we start putting together how the big picture of God, how what's happening with us fits into the larger picture and how the person who's hearing the gospel message now also fits into this picture. And so essentially what we're doing, here's how you can think about this step of the process. It's like taking pieces of the puzzle and fitting them together. How many of you guys in here have ever done a puzzle before? Right? How do you start making, how do you start with a puzzle? Outsides first, right? Always start with a border. Why? Because when you're looking at the table, you're like, you can easily see that's a corner piece, that's a corner piece, that's, a, that's an edge piece. You gather all, then you start out the frame. The next thing you do is you start looking at colors that stand out. All right, everybody give me all the pieces with pink in it. And then you, and you got a blue, you put all the blue. So you start assembling all the pieces. And what Paul is doing here for Agrippa is he's saying, look, God didn't do this thing with Jesus in a corner. We've got, we've got an entire book that's outlining and giving us this picture of Jesus, but in order to see it, you've got to have the right puzzle pieces. You can't just take any old puzzle pieces that the world hands you and start trying to make sense of your life of it. 
You can't take the puzzle pieces of this ideology and be like, well, maybe, maybe these kind of, no, it doesn't fit like that because, because this ideology that we created as man isn't the creator of the universe. So they're the wrong puzzle pieces. And so what Paul is doing, and this is what we do as, as we start evangelizing, is we start helping the people we're evangelizing with start using the right puzzle pieces to start putting things together to make sense. And what he's doing here is he's saying, look, we, uh, Agrippa, think about all the texts in the Old Testament that talk about the Messiah. But those are only some of the puzzle pieces. Those are like the edges. I want you to also think about all the pieces that talk about the Son of Man. And then let's gather all the pieces together to talk about the servant. And then where's all the puzzle pieces that talk about the lamb? And where's the puzzle pieces that talk about the lion? And how about the puzzle pieces that talk about a coming king? And, and where are the puzzle pieces about a, a high priest? Where's the puzzle pieces about, um, about the kinsman redeemer? And when we get all these right pieces together, they start fitting together. And we stand back and we're like, it's Jesus. That's, don't go to this Jesus. It was him all along. So you're telling me this story isn't about King David, it's not about Moses, no. Those are just stories that are puzzle pieces that connect into the larger. See, we've got this Moses, but, but it's not about the Moses, it's about one day there will be a greater Moses, and one day there will be this greater David who's a king, and one day there's gonna be the seed that we're told is gonna stomp the head of the serpent. But it's not just that seed, it's the seed's gonna carry all the way through Israel. And we've got all the puzzle pieces of Israel, but we don't stop at Israel, because then there's gonna be this greater Israel. We've got Israel who walked through the wilderness 40 days and they failed and they passed through water but they failed and then we've got this this Jesus who is the true Israel and he spends 40 days in the wilderness and he passes all the tests and he passes through the water just like the Israel passed through the water but he's not the one complaining that there's no food or manna in the wilderness he's the one who's thanking God and breaking bread and saying I don't live on bread alone I live on every word of God you need all these puzzle pieces to fit together and you're like oh so 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 it's not the Old Testament it's the Bible. All of it is relevant. Yes, all of it is relevant. And this is what Paul is arguing, and it's important for us to see this way if our evangelism is really going to take any root, because the story is not that God saved you. The story, that God, the story is that God saved you and adopted you into a family that he has been building for thousands of years, that will inherit eternal life with him for eternity. That's the story. So Agrippa's hearing this, he's discussing it with the leaders and their assumption is, man, if he had not appealed to Caesar, he would have been free. But we know that's not true because Paul wasn't a free man. He was a bondservant of Christ. So it doesn't really matter what his status is in the eyes of man, he's a slave to Christ and that's the only way he would have it. So here's what I wanna do as we're closing out today. I wanna to take just a quick look at verse 29 to reinforce why we're looking at this text as an evangelistic tool. After he shares his testimony, he makes it very clear in verse 29, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but everyone who hear me this day might become such as I. He is making it clear that what he is doing is witnessing to them. This, to him, this was never a defense trial. This was never a hearing. This was an opportunity, another opportunity for him to share the gospel. And he uses three structured pieces in order to do this. He establishes common ground, 
We're all sinners and we're all hostile to God. He shares his transformed life. There's a specific moment where things were no longer like they were. I came out of darkness into light. I can see and I couldn't see before. My life has changed and I've got a new job. And he connects what God did in him to the larger story of God offering salvation to everyone and that everyone includes the person that you're sharing the gospel message with. So what is the goal for today? It's as simple as it possibly can. We need to take evangelism more seriously. We need to share the good news of Jesus. And the best way to do that is to establish common ground, share what God has done in your life, and help people start putting the puzzle pieces together to see the big thing that God is doing so that what he's doing makes sense in their life. And that's it. You say, well, like, isn't there like more arm twisting? Is there like a prayer I need to get them before we can like actually like check, can I check it off or like, like it's official? No, no, because if, if that was, if that's how it worked, then, then we, didn't, we don't need the promised Holy Spirit. You're, see, you're the mailman, right? You deliver the mail. You share your testimony. You share how these puzzle pieces fit into what God is doing, and then you let the Holy Spirit do the work on the heart, and the person can respond or can reject. But that's not on you, and I think that's one of the biggest reasons why we are hesitant to evangelize, because we feel somehow that if the person rejects it, it's actually them rejecting me, and I don't like being rejected. Well, I got bad news if you're a Christian because all you got coming your way in this world is rejection. That's what you signed up for. And I'm sorry if you just kind of stumbled into it, like no one told me that. Well, if you read your Bibles, Jesus told you that. He's like, look, they hated me long before they ever hated you. They're gonna hate you. This world will not like you following my way of structuring life. So, my prayer today is that we are stirred in a new way with new freedom, new boldness to share the good news of Jesus because these people aren't just gonna stumble upon on their own. They need to hear God's people testifying about the goodness of God and how that invitation is extended to them and walk through the door and join his family. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. You can clap. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.